Thanks for joining us today for the Fellowship Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit fbcpanamacity.com. Now, here's today's message. We're continuing in our series on God honoring homes. And it could have, we could have just as easily named the series Gospel Shaped Homes, because that's really what we're talking about is lives that have been transformed by the gospel, marriages, families, relationships, parenting that's shaped by the gospel. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the gospel, how the gospel shapes our marriages. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to cover this entire passage this week. If I can't, we'll do a a part two of this lesson next week. Um, but this is the Ephesians five. I'm convinced is the be, is the most powerful passage on marriage, on what Christian marriage should look like in the Bible. It's the longest statement in the New Testament on the relationship between husbands and wives. Um, I don't have to tell you that when you look around our, at the political and the moral landscape around you, you see the eroding culture around marriage and sexuality. Uh, and now that my goal here is not to lament that culture. Uh, it's to, it's to address what I believe is also the eroding foundation of marriage in the church. Uh, even in Christianity, you see an eroding culture around marriage to put it bluntly. I'm convinced that a lot of Christianity has just begun to ignore what God says about marriage. And, um, just to, just to put it in context, the passage we're going to read today was written in the context of the first century. Now we think, oh, it's 2,000 years ago. It must have been so much better than today. I promise you it was not. The Greco-Roman culture was self-centered, self-saturated, and immoral when it came to marriage and sexuality. Uh, the words that are on the page that you're going to read today was such a contrast to the culture that it was written in. But I got news for you. It's such a contrast to the culture that you and I are living in today as well. Uh, and what we need to ask ourselves when we read scripture like this, before we dive into God's word, is we have to ask ourselves, when I see the word contrast to the world, what am I going to follow? What am I going to position? Who am I going to submit my life to? I have to choose. Am I going to allow myself to be swayed by the culture that I'm surrounded by every single day? Or am I, as a Christian, as a gospel transformed life, am I going to allow myself to be transformed by the word of God, the word or the world, but I can't have both Uh, because that's going to determine how we see this text, right? If I'm coming to this text saying, God, tell me what to do, show me what to do. I'm going to submit to what your word says. That's a life of Christian obedience. But if I'm going to come to it and say, let's see what it says and I'll think about it. Well, it's a very consumeristic, modern attitude toward Christianity, and people like that fill churches every single Sunday, but it's not a disciple of Christ that thinks that way. Um, and it's so important because it's a picture of, if, and I'm just, this is absolutely true, whether you believe it or not, your, our marriages and Christian marriage in general is a testimony to the world. What we believe about Christ, what we believe about the gospel, we, our marriages are a testimony of that to the world. And we'll get to why that's true here in just a little bit. But I think, I think it, what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say most of all is that there's all kinds of books out there, but I'm telling you the God that made you knows more about marriage, knows more about your marriage than all the Dr. Phil's put together, right? And so the, the one that created us knows us better than anyone. And there's an infinite, anytime you speak to a room like this, uh, there's infinite number of scenarios. There's an infinite number of, of, of intricate pasts, uh, complicated situations. And, and what I love about the word of God is it applies to all of those. 
The truths of God's word applies to every situation. It applies differently in different circumstances, but that's why we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit to take the truth that's always found in God's word and apply it to every single individual situation. So with that in mind, let's, we'll jump right in. We're going to read verses 21 through 33 of Ephesians chapter 5. It says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. We're gonna, I believe this passage breaks down this teaching on marriage into two distinct categories. There's foundations and then there's instructions. We're gonna talk about both. That might be how we split up the two weeks, depending on how today goes, but we're gonna talk about those two areas and then we're gonna talk about applications. So first, well, we're gonna look at um, three foundations for marriage that are in this passage. The first foundation I believe you see clearly here is that the glory of God is the ultimate aim of, aim of marriage. The glory of God is the ultimate aim of marriage. Everything in Ephesians 5 revolves around the glory of God. Look what it says there, specifically the glory of God in Christ. Verse 22 says, wives, uh, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. See, it comes back to your submission to God. Verse 25 says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Look at verse 29. Uh, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. This permeates the whole passage. Everything comes back to Christ. Everything comes back to displaying the glory of Christ, imitating Christ, obeying Christ, doing what we do in marriage as to the Lord for his glory and for the glory of Christ. So the glory of God is the ultimate aim of marriage. To put it another way, marriage exists more for God than it does for you. Marriage exists to glorify God before it exists for you. Now, if you go down to um, the Christian bookstore, you won't have to look very far before you see a whole section on marriage and uh, relationships and all of this stuff. And I'm not trying to say that those are bad resources. There are certainly conferences you can go to. There are certainly retreats you can go to. There are books you can read. But I really believe that, that some, of the, some of the times we go to those resources first, we are, first of all, we bypass the word for somebody else's words. And then one of the other mistakes we make is that we think the problem is that we need a new tactic. We need a new strategy, right? The problem is we have a personality conflict, right? The problem is we have communication problems. The problem, and I'm not trying to minimize any of those things. But sometimes we're looking at those things first, when the first problems are foundational, 
The first problem is that oftentimes is that we're not seeing our marriage as first a way to glorify God. We're seeing it for ourselves. We're seeing about what it means for me. Is this giving me what I need? It's not about whether or not God's the Lord of my life. It's about whether or not I'm getting what I want from my marriage. And because of that, the picture of marriage in the church continues to be decreased and continues to be devalued. We can't bypass the word of God for other people's thoughts and words. And we shouldn't do that. I heard a preacher, his name's Jared Wilson. He, he pastored for 20 years and he was sitting in his office one day and he said that his wife, he asked, he was counseling them. They're having marriage problems. And he said to the, uh, the wife, he says, what is one thing you could ask your husband to do this week that would mean a lot to you? And she said, if he would just stop yelling. <laughs> He yells all the time about everything. If he would stop yelling at all of us, it's very demeaning. And he looks back to the husband and he says, what do you think? And he says, and the husband's response was this, do you have any books that I could read? And he said, what you have is not an information problem. What you have is a motivation problem. Your book is sitting next to you. You don't need to know what to do. She just told you what to do. So, and I believe that that's true for a lot of us. We're looking for some new trick, some new tactic. We're looking for a shortcut, right? We live in the internet age. There's life hack websites, right? Just tell me how to hack this relationship with this complicated human being. It's not how it works. What we need to realize is that it's about self-sacrifice. It's about, it's not about you. It's about the lordship of Christ. God created marriage and he is the Lord of marriage. It exists primarily for the glory of of God and that has to be the starting point the starting point in our relationships. Secondly, I think the second foundation here is that the grace of God is the ultimate hope for marriage. The grace of God is the ultimate hope for our marriages. And that is good news. Because the the God who designed marriage and the Lord of marriage promises to give you the grace to experience marriage as he designed it. God's grace is that the, it's that the divine resources of heaven itself are at your disposal for your marriage. And you might be thinking, well, then why do we have so many problems? Why is marriage so full of, of issues? Well, you get all kinds of answers. Like I said before, you'll get compatibility problems, personality problems, communication problems, problem with your past, problems with their past, problems with the future, problems with the present. You got problems there. You got financial problems. You got sexual problems. You got uh, emotional problems. You got relational problems. And I'm not trying to oversimplify. Those can be real. But the core of scripture says that the major problem in every marriage is one thing, and it's sin. Sometimes we, we like to think of ourselves better than that. Well, we just got to figure out why I'm thinking about this the wrong way. We need to figure out why we're not communicating with each other. You know, oftentimes the problem is you're a sinner. They're a sinner. Uh, and, and that's not, you say, well, how's that good news? It's good news because we serve a God who is a savior, not just one who gives you rules to follow, not just one who says, do these things, but one who came for you and was crucified for your sin and says, I will give you the grace to overcome sin in your life. You have supernatural power to deal with sin. So it's bad news because it means it's not as simple as a communication hack, right? It's sin, it's in you. But it's also good news because we have a savior. Every man and woman in this room is a sinner. Nobody amen too loudly. You'll pay for that later, right? But I think sometimes we just need a good dose of Romans 3 in our marriages, 
We, we don't think of uh, the, the marriage is bringing together two people, a man and a woman whose throats are open sepulchers. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. <laughs> their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Ruin and misery are marking, mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. <laughs> That's Romans three talking about every human being that ever was born. You want to know why you struggle with your marriage? You're a sinner. And they're a sinner. I've never heard any uh, songs about that on at weddings, but it's still true. I don't even think Twyla Paris herself could make that sound romantic. Now, we're ju- I'm saying it in a humorous way, but it's extremely important to deal with this, to come face to face with the sin problem that's at the core of every single one of our hearts. Because if we're not, if we're not realizing that, every other solution we can come up with will just be putting band-aids on broken limbs. And we don't like to think about it like that because the last place we want to look when there's a problem is ourselves. We don't want to look at ourselves. We don't want to go back to the root problem. But if we realize it, if we come face to face with that reality, there's a sin problem in me, then what is it going to do? It's going to drive you to Christ. It's going to drive you to Christ. And that is what marriage is. That's what God wants our marriages to do. He wants our marriages to drive us to Christ for the solution this is why we need the gospel in our marriages. We, we don't just need the gospel to save us so we can pray a prayer and then, okay, now it's moving on to bigger and better things. We need the gospel every single day to empower us, to enable us, to realize the fact that the gospel is our only hope in marriage. If you realize that you're a sinner and that you need the gospel in your marriage, it'll make you humble because you'll realize every single day that you're failing in ways and that some of the conflict, some of the dysfunction is your fault but it'll also give you grace for the other person. Because who are you? Their sin against you has never been more than your sin against Christ. And look at how Christ has loved you. Look how Christ has forgiven you. And it gives you an endless supply of grace for your spouse if if you believe this. Christ is enough for our marriages. So second, the second foundation is that the grace of God is the only hope, is the ultimate hope for a marriage. And lastly, and this is so important, the gospel, the gospel of God is the ultimate picture of marriage. This is foundational. The grace, the, 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 the God's glory is the ultimate aim. His grace is the ultimate hope. And the gospel of God is the ultimate picture. That's the core of Ephesians 5, by the way. There is a dominant correlation through the whole thing between a husband's relationship with his wife and Christ's relationship with his church. That's all throughout Ephesians 5. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands, what? As unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, uh, for, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. And then he goes on to say, husbands, in verse uh, 25, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church, gave himself for it. You get down to verse 31, and he quotes Genesis 2. He says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. And he says, it's a miss, verse 32, he says, this is a great mystery. In other words, he's saying Moses was writing all these things and he didn't really get it. We know today, he says, I'm speaking of Christ in the church. We know today that God didn't design that by accident. God wasn't just saying, hey, let's see how this will work out. What he did is he created marriage as a representation so that for the rest of all of human history, when you want to understand the way God loves his people, you can say, look at a marriage. Look at Adam willingly laying down his own life to be with his wife, knowing she had taken of the fruit and choosing to take of it himself, choosing death 
for his spouse. That's how you can understand Jesus's love for you. From the very beginning of time, marriage was designed by God to be a picture. God saying to the world, catch this, God saying to the world, you wanna see how I love you. Look at marriage and you'll see, you'll see a shadow of that. I mean, do we believe that? That our marriage is a picture of the gospel to the world? What kind of picture is your marriage showing the world about who God is? That's powerful to think about. Wives, husbands, that your marriage is giving the world a picture of the gospel? The question is not whether or not we're giving a picture, it's what kind of picture we're giving. You are giving one. This is both challenging and encouraging. It's challenging on this level. If you're, if you're unfaithful to your spouse, you're showing the world that Christ is not satisfying enough for his people. If you, if you disrespect your wives, if you disrespect your husband, you're showing the world that the church doesn't respect Christ. If you don't follow your husband, as Ephesians 5 outlines here, you're showing that the world that Christ is not worth following. Husbands, if you desert your wives, you show the world that Christ deserts his people. If you ignore your wife, you show the world that Christ wants nothing to do with his people. How can we with our mouths on Sunday proclaim the love and grace of a savior who looks over all of our faults and failures and loves us through it all and is faithful to us through it all and then go out into the world, claim to be recipients of that love and grace and not give that to our spouse. Walk away, disrespect, desert, trample on them. And then what is the world gonna believe? Your words or your actions? So we gotta realize what's at stake here. It's a big deal. And, and I'll tell you, the, there is a world around us here in the United States, make no mistake about it, talk to them. The unchurched, the lost, those who don't know God, ask them what they see in Christianity. What they see is a mess. And it makes it a very blurry picture often to them of who, of who Jesus is, of what the gospel's supposed to be. God forgive us in the church for the times that we've outright slandered the faithfulness of Christ with the way we approach a marriage. This is why we stay together in marriage. Not because it's easy, not because it feels good. You stay together at all, if, if at all possible. If it's, if it's, if it's, if it's the life, unless it's the last only option, you stay together. Why? Because the covenant of Christ is at stake. You stay together in marriage because, because a lost and dying world needs to see the love of Christ. God has said, you want to see the gospel, see it in marriage. That raises marriage to a whole nother level, doesn't it? That's what's encouraging about it. What's encouraging about this is husbands, you have an expert already. You want to know how to love your wife? You want to love your bride? Look at Christ. He shows us how to do it. He tells us how to do it. His whole life is a picture of how to do it. So look to him, see him. You don't have to be a pioneer. You have one who's gone before you who has shown what marriage looks like in his relationship with his people. Next time you say, you don't understand, she's crazy. I can point you to a relationship where that guy has always been perfect. And that, that bride has been crazy from day one. And that is Jesus in the church. And no matter what the church does and how much she deserves or doesn't deserve it, he is faithful, faithful, faithful all the way to the end. 
Wives, see this. God has designed, just as God has designed the satisfaction of his church to be found in her husband called Christ, he has a design, enjoyment, and satisfaction for you in your marriage. And now I know some of you are thinking, eh, it's not what's going on in my life, right? <laughs> That's not what I'm experiencing in marriage. So what do I do? And I know there's, there's always these circumstances that sin has hurt things, sin has harmed things, right? There, there are men and women in this room who've not always shown this picture in the past and you can't undo it. So here's what you do. First and foremost, we need to look at our past redemptively. Look at your past in the light of the grace of God that covers your past. Praise God that his grace covers our past, amen? But it doesn't just cover our past, it empowers our present. The glory of God is bound up in the marriage covenant and God has promised to enable us to be a picture of the gospel. By his grace, God has given us his divine resources. By his grace that me and my wife, you and your husband can join together, even when it's not easy, even when it's difficult for you to join together, you can preach the gospel to the world with the way you love one another. That's God's design for marriage. So from this, a few instructions. That was the foundations, right? (laughs) Here's the other half. We're doing better than I thought on time. So that's the good news. The instructions, what does it really, what does this look like then, right? We've talked about these big ideas, right? What does this look like every day? Based on these foundations, there are instructions right here in the passage. We're gonna divide these into roles and responsibilities because that's what Ephesians does. (laughs) The roles, number one, as Christ relates to the church, the husband is the head of the wife. That's what it says here. As Christ relates to the church, the husband is the head of the wife. Verse 23 says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, I want to do a little grammar lesson here because this can be a little bit confusing. There's two different things. There's something called indicatives and there's something called imperatives, just so that we can understand the difference between the two. An indicative is just a statement of fact. It's not saying something ought to be. It's saying something is, right? The, the pulpit is brown. I didn't say it should be brown. That would be an imperative. An indicative is it is brown. You're, there, are, there are chairs in this room. People are sitting them. In. I'm not saying anything about what it should be. I'm saying what is. That's an indicative. An imperative is the podium should be brown. You should be sitting, right? Those are commands. Those are ought to kind of statements. The reason I'm drawing that comparison is because when you come to Ephesians 5, we need to realize some things. There is some imperatives in this passage, but there's not one for the husband to be the head of the wife. There is not a command in here for the husband to be the head of the wife. It does not say husbands be the head of your wife. That is not the imperative in Ephesians 5. It's an indicative It's a statement of fact. The Bible says the husband is the head of the wife. (laughs) It's a statement of fact. It's a reality. It's the way God designed it. Now, I want to remind you, we're going to get to a uh, verse called uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3. I'll I'll read it to you in a second so you don't have to turn to it. But as soon as I start talking about headship, there are some people whose there's red flags that go up in your mind right? If you've seen some abuse of it and you think, oh, what do you mean by headship? What do you mean by I need to lead? he's leader and I need to follow? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. When we get to First uh, uh, Corinthians 11, 3, um, here in just a second, you'll see that. But let's not forget what has happened up to this point in Ephesians. There's two other times up until verse 23 where Christ is mentioned as the head of his church. He's mentioned also as the head over all of us. Right? So if Christ is the head of the church, that means Christ is the head of the wife too. This does not mean that the husband is the stand-in for Christ to his wife. 
She needs her relationship with Christ and she is a follower of Christ first and foremost as well. The husband is not, he is not perfect. He is not infallible like Christ. He is not supreme like Christ. And a wife is not commanded in scripture to follow her husband to disobey Christ. It's not what it's teaching here. And it's not saying the husband takes the place of Christ in his wife's life. Not at all. Christ is the head over wives and husbands. All of us, he's the head. But the picture here is a relationship between a husband and wife. First Corinthians, which brings us to this verse I was telling you. First Corinthians eleven three says, the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. The reason I want to bring out that passage is because it says that Christ has a head. The head of Christ is God. He's the father and the son. You think to yourself, well, how, is the, how is the head of Christ God? I thought Christ was God. Yes, that's, ex- that's exactly why that verse is valuable. Because this is, we're not talking about value. We're not talking about who's more important. We're not talking about whether or not they're equal. We're not talking about whether or not that they're equal in value and importance. We're just talking about roles. Christ doesn't see it as demeaning to him to submit to the will of the father. Jesus comes to earth and obeys the will of the father. And he tells them, I am here to do the will of him that sent me. I obey the father. That's not demeaning. That's his role. And so I, need, I think it's important when we, when we start talking about the relationship between husband and wives, we need to understand this is a loving headship. This is about roles. This is not about importance. It's not about value. So if there's any angst in you when it comes to this picture of man being ahead or the husband being the head of the wife, if there's any angst, I want you to remind you, Christ was okay with not being the head in his relationship with his father. It's a good thing. It's a good thing for Christ in his entire life on earth that the father was the head. He responded to what the father was leading him to do in loving leadership. So as Christ relates to the church, the husband's the head of the wife. Second, as the church relates to Christ, the wife is the helper of her husband. That's what the Bible teaches. And that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter two. Now in our culture, red flags start going off crazy when you start talking about this kind of stuff, right? Now I want you to understand something. When the Bible says that man was alone, right? And that God created a help for him. When the Bible teaches that in Genesis chapter two, I want you to understand that word help is not some second rate citizen. It has nothing to do with value or importance. The same word that the Bible uses for help when it talks about Eve's help to Adam, it uses in other places when it talks about God helping Israel. So that help can be artillery support, man. (laughs) That help can be huge. That help can be everything. So don't don't ever think uh, the wife is the help of the husband as that means she's some sort of lower station, second class citizen. It's not. It's that you were, is that the, when God provided Eve to Adam, she was everything he couldn't be. She was what he was missing. He couldn't be complete without her. That is the created order. Yes, God created man first and then the woman and God puts that man in the headship position, but he's incomplete without her. This is important to realize. You know, in Genesis two, when it says God's creating all this stuff in Genesis one, and what does he say after he creates everything? Does it, anybody know the three words he always says? It's good. It's good. He makes flowers. He says, it's good. He makes fish and deer. And he says, it's good. Makes the sky and the oceans. And he says, it's good. And then he makes man. And he says, it's not good. That man is alone. And man had not sinned yet. So that loneliness and that, that, that part of you that was missing as a man, that is not a product of sin. You, man was alone before sin. And God, the only thing God created that he didn't say it's good is man's loneliness. So this idea that, that, uh, that, women, that men are in headship, it's not a disrespect to any woman. He was incomplete without his wife. 
And so God gave man this responsibility to care for creation, but he couldn't do it alone. And he quotes that and for here in Ephesians 5. He says, right there in verse uh, 31, he quotes Genesis 2 when he says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined into his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2. No helper was found for Adam, so God creates a woman. And you've got here, you've got this picture. You've got this picture of the man is the head and the woman is the helper, and it's a good thing. It's working in harmony together. You have this man and this woman that are united together in a consuming love for each other in a satisfying way. And we get to the end, it says the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no, and they were not ashamed, which I was looking up the Hebrew for that yesterday. That's a very interesting piece of original language there in Genesis chapter two, when it says they were not ashamed. It basically means they were naked and things were going very well, right? God was, God was blessing them in the garden. Genesis chapter three. So sin enters the world where? Genesis chapter three. And where does God go first when there's sin? Who does he go to first? The man. He says, what is going on? That shows the man's responsibility as the leader. God goes to him first and says, what is the matter? What is wrong? It doesn't mean that the woman wasn't wasn't responsible for her sin, but ultimately the responsibility came back to the leader in this picture who had been given and entrusted that responsibility. And so headship and submission also occurred before, was, was also before the fall. It's not a product of sin. That's God's created order. Now, I won't hide from the fact that there is this, there's abuses of this. Every single good thing that God created, sin destroys. And there is no probably bigger thing that's abused in marriages that God created as good than this idea of leadership and, and helper. I won't, God's design for marriage that God has, that man is the head, woman is helper, is very much abused, even in churches, sometimes by supposedly Christian husbands and Christian wives. But I just want want us to realize that, that in God's will, these things exist. Which just gets, brings us to responsibility. And I know this, you know, in today's age, this feels really old fashioned to talk about. But when you talk about responsibilities, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter two responsibility. Ephesians chapter five starts with the wives. Um, now it talks more to the wives here than it does to the husbands, but I, I believe that what it requires of the husbands is even stiffer and deeper. And we'll get to that here in just a second. Let's start with the wives. We'll get to the men here in just a second. <laughs> wives, what does the scripture say in Ephesians five is your responsibility? Number one, your responsibility is to reverence Christ through submission to your husband reverence Christ through submission to your husband. Now this word submit uh, is another word that can be abused, but I hope we can change that this morning as we look at what it means. It's consistent all through the New Testament. Colossians 3, 18, 1 Peter 3, 1, Titus 2, 4, and Ephesians 5, 22, all say, wives submit to your husband. They all say that. So this is not just some tangent that Paul's going off on, right? This is intentional. The Holy Spirit is giving us this picture all throughout the New Testament. And it's always the same word. And it, it, it mean, and he's saying, Ephesians 5, 21, he's saying, uh, if you actually look one verse before, he says, submitting your, verse 21 of this chapter, he says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So there is a mutual submission even here. And what it literally means is to yield to another's loving leadership. It's saying to wives, and it's not just saying generically. It's not saying all women to all men. It's not saying you woman to every man. No, it's saying you, you a wife to her husband. It's very specific. And what it's saying is trust your husband, yield to his leadership, follow him. That's what it's saying. In the same way, and the picture is, I'll go back to what we mentioned earlier, Christ subordinated himself to the father. 
We see that all through the gospels. He's saying whatever, says, whatever the father says, I do. Whatever the father tells me to speak, I speak. So it's not inferiority. It's not inequality. It's not coercion. It's voluntary submission. It's trusting. It's yielding in devotion to another person. It's a good thing. Scripture says, you reverence Christ out of reverence for Christ. As to the Lord, submit to your husband. Then the second verse, uh, verse 33, he comes back and says, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So this is interesting. There's just so much wisdom in this. But what you've got is you don't even have a command for wives to love your husbands directly. It, it later will tell the husband to love the wife and it tells the wife to reverence her husband or respect her husband. Um, so I think underlying here is something about the way God designed men and women, right? He designed husbands with this need to feel respected. And he designed women with that need to feel loved. And so God's zeroing in on that as, as a primary need for, your, for husbands and wives. I think if we're honest with, you, with ourselves, often we struggle with that. It may be easier for women to love their husband than it is for men to love their wives. Maybe easier for women to be loving. And it may be easier for men to be respectful of their wife than it is for wives to be respectful of their husbands. Right? I don't know. Maybe it's easier for women to sit around and gossip about their husbands than it is for men to sit around and gossip about their wives. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> I mean, you've, you've all been in those environments where you're sitting around and everybody's bad mouthing their spouse, right? And you're like, I don't think this is right. <laughs> I don't like what you're saying. And, and, you, and I've even been in situations where the guys are like, you know what I mean? Man, I'm so blessed that many times in those situations I've been like, I don't have a clue what you mean, man. I'm sorry. But wives, do you respect your husband? Do you tell your husband what you respect in him? Say, well, yeah, he's not doing a very good job leading. Look, that might be true. Find something to respect about him and let him know that you respect it about him because that will encourage him in ways you can't imagine. Knowing he is respected does wonders for a man's uh, feeling that, he's, that, he, that, he's, that he can lead well, that he can do it. Women, I, I think there's a lot of women have no idea of their power. Some do, <laughs> some really know, but a lot of women do not know. They do not know the power they have to make or break a man to make him feel worthless or to make him feel like he can take on anything. Your wives, you have the power to respect your husband in such a way that everybody else could forsake him. And he thinks, you know what? At least I have my wife. I can be okay as long as she's behind me. That's, there is an immense power in that. I heard a, a great story of a preacher who was, who was working. He had to work while he was starting a church and he worked, a, he ran a gas station he owned, it and owned and ran a gas station back in the early 1900s while, his, while he was pastoring this church. And they were doing so badly financially that he was worried the electric would be cut off in his house. And eventually it did happen. Well, he came home one night and he didn't know that. He came home and all the lights were off and there were candles lit and there was dinner on the table. And he sat down and he said, well, this is special. And she said, I just know how hard you work and I just wanted you to have a great meal tonight. I just wanted to be romantic and all the kids were, you know, locked up in a bedroom somewhere, right? And so they have dinner together and he just loved it, had a great time with his wife. And he goes out and he goes to the restroom to wash his hands and he, tur he turns his faucet on and no water comes out. And he realizes, 
she just wanted to be encouraging to him, but they didn't have any power and he didn't, she didn't want him to know that the power had gotten cut off. And he said he wept, he cried. And he wasn't crying because the power was off. He was crying tears of gratitude to God for a woman that would support him like that. That's power, women. That is, that's an amazing power that God has given you to respect and support your husband. Lift your husband up. Look for any opportunity you have, ladies, to lift up your husband. You are the helper in Genesis 2. That's the picture. You're that artillery support. It's a big deal. So now we're on to the husbands. We got a few minutes. I'll just hit hard and heavy, okay? Guys, there's two responsibilities. Number one, reflect Christ to set your sacrifice to your wife, to your wife. I told you it gets real heavy real quick for you guys. Reflect Christ through your sacrifice for your wife. What did Jesus do? Gave himself up. When we deserve the wrath of Almighty God, Christ put himself in our place, in your place, my place. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that you wouldn't have to. All glory be to Christ for that. There's no way we're here right now without Christ giving himself up for us. So husbands, Paul says, love your wife like that. Headship is not an opportunity, gentlemen, for us to dominate our wives. It's a responsibility to die for our wives. It's a responsibility to give ourselves up, to give yourself up in sacrifice for your wife. Culture says be macho, defend yourself, assert yourself, build up yourself, look out for yourself. Scripture says die to yourself. Give up yourself for your wife. This is the command upon you. And I'll tell you, this is why the headship and the helper dynamic of scripture is so different than what the culture thinks it is. They think it's demeaning. They think it's oppressive. They think it's old fashioned. I'm telling you, have you ever felt that way about Christ's leadership of you? Never one time. Why? Because you know that Jesus above all gave all and he doesn't coerce you. He doesn't whip you. He doesn't beat you. He's not oppressive to you. He leads you in love and you want to follow him because of the love that he has shown for you. That's the picture of male leadership in the home. I said it was heavy. Oh, that's great. I'll just go out here and be Jesus. Hey, our calling is to represent Christ to our wives, to lay ourselves down in self-sacrificing love. It tells six times in eight verses, it says, love your wife, love your wife, love your wife, love your wife. You need respect. She needs love. She needs love from you. I think we have a tendency, guys, to give respect a lot easier than love, right? Doesn't, it's not hard for me to respect my wife. I have two hours alone with the kids, you know? <laughs> she comes back, I'm like, oh, you're wonderful, <laughs> right? Ephesians 5 says, love her. How do I love her? Well, first of all, unselfishly. Christ loves unselfishly. It's not about what you get in return. This is huge for both husbands and wives. I don't respect him because you don't know how, how bad he's leading. Hey, is he gonna love you? Do you want him to love you that way? vice versa. Oh, she's not respectful to me. How can I love her? You want her to respect you conditionally? No, you don't. You don't want her just to respect you when you're doing a good job. You want her to respect you all the time. So don't just love her conditionally. Love her the way Christ loves unselfishly. Unselfishly. Love her also effectively. Effectively. 
This is where it's really interesting. Paul kind of goes off on a tangent talking about all the things Christ does to the church to make her holy, to, to wash her with water, to present her without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. And that, that's a picture of what you're supposed to be for your wife. What he's, he's sort of in, in, implying here in the passage that you present your wife as more lovely and more beautiful when you sacrifice for her that you make her glorious. You make her all she could be when you are in sacrificial, loving leadership to her. Wow, what a powerful, what a powerful thing. I don't, I was reading this again last night and I don't, I don't know that I even understand all of that. But what a challenge to us, huh, man? I was deeply convicted by this. You know, we like leadership when it means I get to have my way, but man, what do we, what does leadership look like when it means, hey, my wife is not all she could be because I'm not enough like Jesus, because I'm not loving her like that. We have that responsibility. I know it's bold. I know it's challenging, but gentlemen, we are responsible for this, not by dominating them, by helping them grow in loveliness. This is the way. How does Christ make his church holy, beautiful, lovely? By sacrificing for them. That's what we're called to do. If you're, if you're experiencing troubles in your marriage now, husbands, don't fall asleep on your watch. It's time for us to rise up and take our responsibility for what God's entrusted us to. This picture of headship shouldn't cause me to say, oh yeah, I'm the man, I'm the leader, I wear the pants. What it should do is cause us to tremble before God and ask him for his help. I've got more here, but I believe that kind of covers what I had. Look what he says here. We'll end with this. He says, how, how, do you, how do you need a lover? He says in verse 29, no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord, the church. God knows that husbands, there's a propensity to have that pride, that domination. He says, is that what you do to your own body? Is that, how you, is that how you treat your body? Is that how you treat your flesh? No, you nourish and cherish it. That's how also the Lord takes care of the church. That's how you should treat your wife. Loving her completely. One flesh, as if, as if there's no difference. There's no place where I stop and she begins. We are one. Joined together in one flesh. It's not her life. It's your life. She's like your own body. husbands, can we outserve our wife? Wives, can we observe and respect and champion our husband's leadership? And can we together let Christ serve us where our wives and husbands fail us? Can we look to the grace that God provides through Jesus to give each other grace and pray for one another and have a marriage That's that picture of the gospel to the world that we're supposed to be doing. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Fellowship Baptist Church. Come visit us at 2501 Michigan Avenue, Panama City, Florida. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit fbcpanamacity.com. Have a great week.